now that he can no longer find work as an actor or a lawyer, how will André Louis survive? Raphael Sabatini, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all of our financial supporters. We couldn't do this without you. With us giving away so much free material during this time of the pandemic, we need your help more than ever. Thank you so much for stepping up and helping us to keep going strong. In case you haven't already, feel free to take advantage of our free titles. We have a few short stories and a few full-length novels available free for your enjoyment. Hopefully, it'll help you keep your mind off of other things. I hope you like our new website at classictalesaudiobooks.com. It's easier than ever to get where you need to go. Thank you to Annie from the Join Us in France podcast, who helped with the pronunciations of the French names and phrases for this week's episode. If you're interested in France at all, you should check out her show. It's fantastic. App users can hear Holy Sonnet 14, the last of our poems from John Donne, in the special features area of their app. Now for our personal moment. We went to the aquarium. We went there early, we masked on up, and half of it was closed down because you couldn't touch all of the hands-on kind of things. All of that stuff was blocked off, but I'd never been to our little aquarium here in Utah before, and it was really, I was very impressed. It was really quite extensive and good. A friend of mine did some sculptures for it, and I used to work for the architectural company that uh, did a lot of the big sculptures as well. So it was a lot of fun for me to point out, and my kids always, are, they're used to me doing this by now. When we go through something like this, or if we go to Disneyland or whatever, I always have to point out how everything was made, how they made that rock or how they painted that or what techniques they used to make it look like what it looks like and uh, point out the bad rock work and everything. My kids are super patient and kind to like go, yes, that's that's really interesting. I know, but for some reason I can't not say stuff. I guess I, I got to get better at that. So anyway, and afterward, after we saw all of the fish and all the sharks and all the everything, we went out to sushi. It was Scylla's idea. It was awesome. That's our personal moment. Thank you very much. Here's the story so far. André Louis is on the run again. After evading capture for inciting rebellion, he sought shelter in the guise of Scaramouche with a mediocre band of players for a while. But now that's also gone bust, and André Louis wanders to Paris. He must find something else to keep him in shoe leather, or he may very well starve. And now... Scaramouche, Part 8 of 12, by Raphael Sabatini. Book 3, The Sword. Chapter 1, Transition. You may agree wrote André-Louis from Paris to Le Chapelier, in a letter which survives, that it is to be regretted I should definitely have discarded the livery of Scaramouche, since clearly there could be no livery fitter for my wear. 
It seems to be my part always to stir up strife and then to slip away before I am caught in the crash of the warring elements I have aroused. It is a humiliating reflection. I seek consolation in the reminder of Epictetus. Do you ever read Epictetus? That we are but actors in a play, of such a part as it may please the director to assign us. It does not, however, console me to have been cast for a part so contemptible to find myself excelling ever in the art of running away. But if I am not brave, at least I am prudent, so that where I lack one virtue, I may lay claim to possessing another almost to excess. On a previous occasion, they wanted to hang me for sedition. Should I have stayed to be hanged? This time they may want to hang me for several things, including murder, for I do not know whether that scoundrel Binet be alive or dead from the dose of lead I pumped into his fat paunch. Nor can I say that I very greatly care. If I have a hope at all in the matter, it is that he is dead and damned. But I am really indifferent. My own concerns are troubling me enough. I have all but spent the little money that I contrived to conceal about me before I fled from Nantes on that dreadful night and both of the only two professions of which I can claim to know anything, the law and the stage, are closed to me, since I cannot find employment in either without revealing myself as a fellow who is urgently wanted by the hangman. As things are, it is very possible that I may die of hunger, especially considering the present price of victuals in this ravenous city. Again I have recourse to Epictetus for comfort, it is better, he says, to die of hunger, having lived without grief and fear, than to live with a troubled spirit amid abundance. I seem likely to perish in the estate that he accounts so enviable. That it does not seem exactly enviable to me merely proves that, as a Stoic, I am not a success. There is also another letter of his, written at about the same time to the Marquis de la Tour d'Azir, a letter since published by Monsieur Emile Cassac, in his undercurrents of the revolution in Brittany, unearthed by him from the archives of Rennes, to which it has been consigned by Monsieur de Lédiguière, who had received it for justiciary purposes from the Marquis. The Paris newspapers, he writes in this, which have reported in considerable detail the fracas at the Théâtre Feydeau, and disclose the true identity of the scaramouche who provoked it, inform me also that you have escaped the fate I had intended for you, when I raised that storm of public opinion and public indignation. I would not have you take satisfaction in the thought that I regret your escape. I do not. I rejoice in it. To deal justice by death has this disadvantage, that the victim has no knowledge that justice has overtaken him. Had you died... Had you been torn limb from limb that night, I should now repine in the thought of your eternal and untroubled slumber. Not in euthanasia, but in torment of mind, should the guilty atone. You see, I am not sure that hell hereafter is a certainty, while I am quite sure that it can be a certainty in this life, and I desire you to continue to live yet a while, that you may taste something of its bitterness." You murdered Philippe de Villemorin because you feared what you described as his very dangerous gift of eloquence. 
I took an oath that day that your evil deed should be fruitless, that I would render it so, that the voice you had done murder to stifle should in spite of that ring like a trumpet through the land. That was my conception of revenge. Do you realize how I have been fulfilling it? How I shall continue to fulfill it, as occasion offers? In the speech with which I fired the people of Rennes on the very morrow of that deed, did you not hear the voice of Philippe de Villemorin uttering the ideas that were his, with a fire and a passion greater than he could have commanded, because Nemesis lent me her inflaming aid? In the voice of Omnis Omnibus at Nantes, my voice again, demanding the petition that sounded the knell of your hopes of coercing the third estate. Did you not hear again the voice of Philippe de Villemorin? Did you not reflect that it was the mind of the man you had murdered, resurrected in me his surviving friend, which made necessary your futile attempt under arms last January, wherein your order, finally beaten, was driven to seek sanctuary at the Cordelier convent? And that night when from the stage of the Feydou you were denounced to the people, did you not hear yet again, in the voice of Scaramouche, the voice of Philip de Villemorin, using that dangerous gift of eloquence which you so foolishly imagined you could silence with a sword thrust? It is becoming a persecution, is it not? This voice from the grave that insists upon making itself heard, that will not rest until you have been cast into the pit." You will be regretting by now that you did not kill me too, as I invited you on that occasion. I can picture to myself the bitterness of this regret, and I contemplate it with satisfaction. Regret of neglected opportunity is the worst hell that a living soul can inhabit, particularly such a soul as yours. It is because of this that I am glad to know that you survived the riot at the Feydou, although at the time it was no part of my intention that you should. Because of this, I am content that you should live to enrage and suffer in the shadow of your evil deed, knowing at last, since you had not hitherto the wit to discern it for yourself, that the voice of Philippe de Villemorin will follow you to denounce you ever more loudly, ever more insistently, until having lived in dread, you shall go down in blood, under the just rage which your victim's dangerous gift of eloquence is kindling against you. I find it odd that he should have omitted from this letter all mention of Mademoiselle Binet, and I am disposed to account it at least a partial insincerity that he should have assigned entirely to his self-imposed mission and not at all to his lacerated feelings in the matter of Climen, the action which he had taken at the Feydou. Those two letters, both written in April of that year 1789, had for only immediate effect to increase the activity with which André-Louis Moreau was being sought. Le Chapelier would have found him so as to lend him assistance, to urge upon him once again that he should take up a political career. The electors of Nantes would have found him. At least, they would have found Omnis Omnibus, of whose identity with himself they were still in ignorance, on each of the several occasions when a vacancy occurred in their body. And the Marquis de la Tour d'Azire and Monsieur de Lady Guerre 
would have found him that they might send him to the gallows. With a purpose no less vindictive was he being sought by Monsieur Binet, now unhappily recovered from his wound, to face completest ruin. His troop had deserted him during his illness, and reconstituted under the direction of Polichinelle, he was now striving with tolerable success to continue upon the lines which André Louis had laid down. Monsieur le Marquis, prevented by the riot from expressing in person to Mademoiselle Binet his purpose of making an end of their relations, had been constrained to write to her to that effect from Azir a few days later. He tempered the blow by enclosing in discharge of all liabilities a bill on the Casse d'Escompte, for a hundred louis. Nevertheless, it almost crushed the unfortunate, and it enabled her father, when he recovered, to enrage her by pointing out that she owed this turn of events to the premature surrender she had made, in defiance of his sound worldly advice. Father and daughter alike were left to assign the Marquis's desertion, naturally enough, to the riot at the Feydou. They laid that, with the rest, to the account of Scaramouche, and were forced in bitterness to admit that the scoundrel had taken a superlative revenge. Climène may even have come to consider that it would have paid her better to have run a straight course with Scaramouche, and by marrying him, to have trusted to his undoubted talents to place her on the summit to which her ambition urged her, and to which it was now futile for her to aspire. If so, that reflection must have been her sufficient punishment." For, as André Louis so truly says, there is no worse hell than that provided by the regrets for wasted opportunities. Meanwhile, the fiercely sought André Louis Moreau had gone to earth completely for the present, and the brisk police of Paris, urged on by the king's lieutenant from Rennes, hunted for him in vain. Yet he might have been found in a house in the Rue du Hasard, within a stone's throw of the Palais Royal, whither purest chance had conducted him. That which in his letter to Le Chapelier he represents as a contingency of the near future was in fact the case in which already he found himself. He was destitute. His money was exhausted, including that procured by the sale of such articles of adornment as were not of absolute necessity. So desperate was his case that strolling one gusty April morning down the Rue du Hasard, with his nose in the wind looking for what might be picked up, he stopped to read a notice outside the door of a house on the left side of the street as you approached the Rue de Richelieu. There was no reason why he should have gone down the Rue du Hasard. Perhaps its name attracted him, as appropriate to his case. The notice, written in a big round hand, announced that a young man of good address with some knowledge of swordsmanship was required by Monsieur Bertrand des Amis on the second floor. Above this notice was a black oblong board, and on this a shield, which in vulgar terms may be described as red, charged with two swords crossed and four fleur-de-lis, one in each angle of the saltier. Under the shield, in letters of gold, ran the legend Bertrand des Amis. Maître en fait d'armes des Académies de Roi. André Louis stood considering. He could claim, he thought, to possess the qualifications demanded. He was certainly young, 
and he believed of tolerable address, whilst the fencing lessons he had received in Nantes had given him at least an elementary knowledge of swordsmanship. The notice looked as if it had been pinned there some days ago, suggesting that applicants for the post were not very numerous. In that case, perhaps Monsieur Bertrand des Amis would not be too exigent. And anyway, André-Louis had not eaten for four-and-twenty hours, and whilst the employment here offered, the precise nature of which he was yet to ascertain, did not appear to be such as André-Louis would deliberately have chosen, he was in no case now to be fastidious. Then, too, he liked the name of Bertrand des Amis. It felicitously combined suggestions of chivalry and friendliness. Also, the man's profession being of a kind that is flavoured with romance, it was possible that Monsieur Bertrand des Amis would not ask too many questions. In the end, he climbed to the second floor. On the landing, he paused outside a door, on which was written, Academy of Monsieur Bertrand des Amis. He pushed this open, and found himself in a sparsely furnished, untenanted antechamber. From a room beyond, the door of which was closed, came the stamping of feet, the click and slither of steel upon steel, and dominating these sounds, a vibrant, sonorous voice, speaking a language that was certainly French, but such French as is never heard outside a fencing school. Coulez même, coulez donc. So, now the flaconade, on carte. And here is the riposte. Let us begin again. Come, the word of fierce. Make the coup, and then the cant par dessus les armes. Oh, mais allongez, allongez, allez au fond. The voice cried in expostulation. Come, that was better. The blades ceased. Remember, the hand in pronation, the elbow not too far out. That will do for today. On Wednesday we shall see you tirer au mur. It is more deliberate. Speed will follow when the mechanism of the movements is more assured. Another voice murmured in answer. The steps moved aside. The lesson was at an end. André-Louis tapped on the door. It was opened by a tall, slender, gracefully proportioned man of perhaps forty. Black silk breeches and stockings, ending in light shoes, clothed him from the waist down. Above, he was encased to the chin in a closely fitting plastron of leather. His face was aquiline and swarthy, his eyes full and dark. His mouth firm, and his clubbed hair was of a lustrous black, with here and there a thread of silver showing. In the crook of his left arm he carried a fencing mask, a thing of leather with a wire grating to protect the eyes. His keen glance played over André-Louis from head to foot. Monsieur, he inquired politely. It was clear that he mistook André-Louis's quality, which is not surprising, for despite his sadly reduced fortunes, his exterior was irreproachable, and Monsieur des Amis was not to guess that he carried upon his back the whole of his possessions. You have a notice below, monsieur, he said, and from the swift lighting of the fencing-master's eyes he saw that he had been correct in his assumption that applicants for the position had not been jostling one another on his threshold. And then that flash of satisfaction was followed by a look of surprise. You are come in regard to that? André-Louis shrugged and half-smiled. 
one must live, said he. But come in, sit down there. I shall be at your... I shall be free to attend to you in a moment. André-Louis took a seat on the bench ranged against one of the whitewashed walls. The room was long and low, its floor entirely bare. Plain wooden forms, such as that which he occupied, were placed here and there against the wall. These last were plastered with fencing trophies, masks, crossed foils, stuffed plastrons, and a variety of swords, daggers, and targets, belonging to a variety of ages and countries. There was also a portrait of an obese, big-nosed gentleman, in an elaborately curled wig, wearing the blue ribbon of the Saint-Esprit, in whom André-Louis recognized the king. And there was a framed parchment, Monsieur Desamis's certificate from the King's Academy. A bookcase occupied one corner, and near this, facing the last of the four windows that abundantly lighted the long room, there was a small writing-table and an armchair. A plump and beautifully dressed young gentleman stood by this table in the act of resuming coat and wig. Monsieur Desamis sauntered over to him, moving, thought André-Louis, with extraordinary grace and elasticity, and stood in talk with him whilst also assisting him to complete his toilet. At last the young gentleman took his departure, mopping himself with a fine kerchief that left a trail of perfume on the air. Monsieur Desamis closed the door and turned to the applicant, who rose at once. "'Where have you studied?' quoth the fencing-master abruptly. "'Studied?' André-Louis was taken aback by the question. Oh, at Louis Le Grand. Monsieur Desamis frowned, looking up sharply as if to see whether his applicant was taking the liberty of amusing himself. In heaven's name, I am not asking where you did your humanities, but in what academy you studied fencing. Oh, fencing! It had hardly ever occurred to André Louis that the sword ranked seriously as a study. I never studied it very much. I had some lessons in in the country once. The master's eyebrows went up. But then, he cried, why trouble to come up two flights of stairs? He was impatient. The notice does not demand a high degree of proficiency. If I am not proficient enough, yet knowing the rudiments, I can easily improve. I learn most things readily. André-Louis commended himself. For the rest... I possess the other qualifications. I am young, as you observe, and I leave you to judge whether I am wrong in assuming that my address is good. I am by profession a man of the robe, though I realize that the motto here is Chedat Toga Aramis. Monsieur Desamis smiled approvingly. Undoubtedly the young man had a good address, and a certain readiness of wit, it would appear. He ran a critical eye over his physical points. "'What is your name?' he asked. "'André-Louis hesitated a moment. "'André-Louis,' he said. "'The dark, keen eyes conned him more searchingly. "'Well, André-Louis what?' "'Just André-Louis. "'Louis is my surname.' "'Ah, an odd surname. "'You come from Brittany by your accent. "'Why did you leave it?' "'To save my skin.' he answered, without reflecting, and then made haste to cover the blunder. I have an enemy, he explained. Monsieur Desamis frowned. 
stroking his square chin. You ran away? You may say so. A coward, eh? I don't think so. And then he lied romantically. Surely a man who lived by the sword should have a weakness for the romantic. You see, my enemy is a swordsman of great strength, the best blade in the province, if not the best blade in France. That is his repute. I thought I would come to Paris to learn something of the art, and then go back and kill him. That, to be frank, is why your note has attracted me. You see, I have not the means to take lessons otherwise. I thought to find work here, in the law, but I have failed. There are too many lawyers in Paris as it is, and whilst waiting, I have consumed the little money that I had. So that, so that's, enfin, your notice seemed to me something to which a special providence had directed me. Monsieur Desamis gripped him by the shoulders and looked into his face. Is this true, my friend? he asked. Not a word of it, said André Louis, wrecking his chances on an irresistible impulse to say the unexpected. But he didn't wreck them. Monsieur Desamis burst into laughter, and having laughed his fill, confessed himself charmed by his applicant's fundamental honesty. Take off your coat, he said, and let us see what you can do. Nature, at least, designed you for a swordsman. You are light, active, and supple, with a good length of arm, and you seem intelligent. I may make something of you, teach you enough for my purpose, which is that you should give the elements of the art to new pupils, before I take them in hand to finish them. Let us try. Take that mask and foil and come over here. He led him to the end of the room, where the bare floor was scored with lines of chalk to guide the beginner in management of his feet. At the end of a ten minutes bout, Monsieur Desamis offered him the situation and explained it. In addition to imparting the rudiments of the art to beginners, he was to brush out the fencing room every morning, keep the foils furbished, assist the gentleman who came for lessons to dress and undress, and make himself generally useful. His wages for the present were to be forty livres a month, and he might sleep in an alcove behind the fencing room, if he had no other lodging. The position, you see, had its humiliations. But if André Louis would hope to dine, he must begin by eating his pride as an hors d'oeuvre. And so, he said, controlling a grimace, the robe yields not only to the sword, but to the broom as well. Be it so, I stay. It is characteristic of him that having made that choice, he should have thrown himself into the work with enthusiasm. It was ever his way to do whatever he did with all the resources of his mind and energies of his body. When he was not instructing very young gentlemen in the elements of the art, showing them the elaborate and intricate salute, which, with a few days' hard practice, he had mastered to perfection, and the eight guards, he was himself hard at work on those same guards, exercising eye, wrist, and knees. Perceiving his enthusiasm, and seeing the obvious possibilities it opened, out of turning him into a really effective assistant, Monsieur Desamis presently took him more seriously in hand. Your application and zeal, my friend, are deserving of more than forty livres a month, the master informed him at the end of a week. 
For the present, however, I will make up what else I consider due to you by imparting to you secrets of this noble art. Your future depends upon how you profit by your exceptional good fortune in receiving instruction from me. Thereafter, every morning before the opening of the academy, the master would fence for half an hour with his new assistant. Under this really excellent tuition, André-Louis improved at a rate that both astounded and flattered Monsieur Desamis. He would have been less flattered and more astounded had he known that at least half the secret of André-Louis's amazing progress lay in the fact that he was devouring the contents of the master's library, which was made up of a dozen or so treatises on fencing by such great masters as La Bessière, Danet, and the syndic of the King's Academy, Augustin Rousseau. To Monsieur Desamis, whose swordsmanship was all based on practice and not at all on theory, who is indeed no theorist or student in any sense, that little library was merely a suitable adjunct to a fencing academy, a proper piece of decorative furniture. The books themselves meant nothing to him in any other sense. He had not the type of mind that could have read them with profit, nor could he understand that another should do so. André-Louis, on the contrary, a man with the habit of study, with the acquired faculty of learning from books, read those works with enormous profit, kept their precepts in mind, critically set off those of one master against those of another, and made for himself a choice, which he proceeded to put into practice. At the end of a month, it suddenly dawned upon Monsieur Desamis that his assistant had developed into a fencer of very considerable force, a man in about with whom it became necessary to exert himself if he were to escape defeat. "'I said from the first, he told him one day, "'that nature designed you for a swordsman. "'See how justified I was, "'and see also how well I have known how to mould the material "'with which nature has equipped you.' "'To the master be the glory,' said André-Louis. His relations with Monsieur Desamis had meanwhile become of the friendliest, and he was now beginning to receive from him other pupils than mere beginners. In fact, André-Louis was becoming an assistant in a much fuller sense of the word. Monsieur Desamis, a chivalrous, open-handed fellow, far from taking advantage of what he had guessed to be the young man's difficulties, rewarded his zeal by increasing his wages to four louis a month, from the earnest and thoughtful study of the theories of others, it followed now, as not uncommonly happens, that André-Louis came to develop theories of his own. He lay one June morning on his little truckle bed in the alcove behind the academy, considering a passage that he had read last night in Danet on double and triple feints. It had seemed to him when reading it that Danet had stopped short on the threshold of a great discovery in the art of fencing. Essentially a theorist, André-Louis perceived the theory suggested, which Danet himself, in suggesting it, had not perceived. He lay now on his back, surveying the cracks in the ceiling, and considering this matter further, with the lucidity that early morning often brings to an acute intelligence. You are to remember that for close upon two months now, the sword had been André-Louis's daily exercise and almost hourly thought, protracted concentration upon the subject, was giving him an extraordinary penetration of vision. Swordsmanship, 
as he learnt and taught and saw it daily practised, consisted of a series of attacks and parries, a series of disengages from one line into another, but always a limited series. A half-dozen disengages on either side were, strictly speaking, usually as far as any engagement went. Then one recommenced. But even so, these disengages were fortuitous. What if, from the first to the last, they should be calculated? That was part of the thought, one of the two legs on which his theory was to stand. The other was, what would happen if one so elaborated Danae's ideas on the triple feint as to merge them into a series of actual, calculated disengages to culminate at the fourth or fifth or even sixth disengage? That is to say, if one were to make a series of attacks, inviting reposts again to be countered, each of which was not intended to go home, but simply to play the opponent's blade into a line that must open him ultimately, and as predetermined, for an irresistible lunge. Each counter of the opponent's would have to be preconsidered in this widening of his guard, a widening so gradual that he should himself be unconscious of it, and throughout intent upon getting home his own point on one of those counters. André-Louis had been in his time a chess player of some force, and at chess he had excelled by virtue of his capacity for thinking ahead. That virtue applied to fencing should all but revolutionise the art. It was so applied already, of course, but only in an elementary and very limited fashion, in mere feints, single, double, or triple. But even the triple feint should be a clumsy device compared with this method upon which he theorised. He considered further, and the conviction grew that he held the key of a discovery. He was impatient to put his theory to the test. That morning he was given a pupil of some force, against whom usually he was hard put to it to defend himself. Coming on guard, he made up his mind to hit him on the fourth disengage, predetermining the four passes that should lead up to it. They engaged in tears, and André-Louis led the attack by a beat and a straightening of the arm. Came the demi-contre he expected, which he promptly countered by a thrust in quint. This being countered again, he re-entered still lower, and being again correctly parried, as he had calculated, he lunged, swirling his point into cart, and got home full upon his opponent's breast. The ease of it surprised him. They began again. This time he resolved to go in on the fifth disengage, and in on that he went with the same ease. Then complicating the matter further, he decided to try the sixth, and worked out in his mind the combination of the five preliminary engages. Yet again, he succeeded as easily as before. The young gentleman opposed to him laughed with just a tinge of mortification in his voice. "'I am all to pieces this morning,' he said. "'You are not of your usual force,' André-Louis politely agreed, and then greatly daring, always to test that theory of his to the uttermost. "'So much so,' he added, "'that I could almost be sure of hitting you as when I declare.' The capable pupil looked at him with a half-sneer. "'Ah, that, no,' said he. "'Let us try. "'On the fourth disengage I shall touch you. "'Allons, en garde.' 
and as he promised, so it happened. The young gentleman, who hitherto had held no great opinion of André-Louis' swordsmanship, accounting him well enough for purposes of practice when the master was otherwise engaged, opened wide his eyes. In a burst of mingled generosity and intoxication, André-Louis was almost for disclosing his method, a method which a little later was to become a commonplace of the fencing rooms. Betimes he checked himself. To reveal his secret would be to destroy the prestige that must accrue to him from exercising it. At noon, the academy being empty, Monsieur Desamis called André-Louis to one of the occasional lessons which he still received, and for the first time in all his experience with André-Louis, Monsieur Desamis received from him a full hit in the course of the first bout. He laughed, well pleased, like the generous fellow he was. Aha! You are improving very fast, my friend. He still laughed, though not so well pleased, when he was hit in the second bout. After that he settled down to fight in earnest with the result that André-Louis was hit three times in succession. The speed and accuracy of the fencing-master, when fully exerting himself, disconcerted André-Louis's theory, which for want of being exercised in practice still demanded too much consideration. But that his theory was sound he accounted fully established, and with that, for the moment, he was content. It remained only to perfect by practice the application of it. To this he now devoted himself with the passionate enthusiasm of the discoverer. He confined himself to half a dozen combinations, which he practised assiduously until each had become almost automatic, and he proved their infallibility upon the best among Monsieur Desamis's pupils. Finally, a week or so after the last bout of his with Desamis, the master called him once more to practise. Hit again in the first bout, the master set himself to exert all his skill against his assistant. But today it availed him nothing before André-Louis' impetuous attacks. After the third hit, Monsieur Desamis stepped back and pulled off his mask. "'What's this?' he asked. He was pale, and his dark brows were contracted in a frown. Not in years had he been so wounded in his self-love. "'Have you been taught a secret bot?' He had always boasted that he knew too much about the sword to believe any nonsense about secret bots. But this performance of André-Louis' had shaken his convictions on that score. No, said André-Louis, I have been working hard, and it happens that I fence with my brains. So I perceive. Well, well, I think I have taught you enough, my friend. I have no intention of having an assistant who is superior to myself. Little danger of that said André-Louis, smiling pleasantly. "'You have been fencing hard all morning, and you are tired, whilst I, having done little, am entirely fresh. That is the only secret of my momentary success.' His tact, and the fundamental good nature of Monsieur Desamis, prevented the matter from going farther along the road it was almost threatening to take. And thereafter, when they fenced together, André-Louis, who continued daily to perfect his theory into an almost infallible system, saw to it that Monsieur Desamis always scored against him at least two hits for every one of his own. So much he would grant to discretion, but no more. He desired that Monsieur Desamis should be conscious of his strength, without, however, 
discovering so much of its real extent as would have excited in him an unnecessary degree of jealousy. And so well did he contrive that whilst he became ever of greater assistance to the master, for his style and general fencing too had materially improved, he was also a source of pride to him as the most brilliant of all the pupils that had ever passed through his academy. Never did André-Louis disillusion him by revealing the fact that his skill was due far more to Monsieur Desamis's library and his own mother wit than to any lessons received. Chapter 2 Quas Deus Vult Perdere Once again, precisely as he had done when he joined the Binet troupe, did André-Louis now settle down wholeheartedly to the new profession into which necessity had driven him, and in which he found effective concealment from those who might seek him to his hurt. This profession might, although in fact it did not, have brought him to consider himself at last as a man of action. He had not, however, on that account, ceased to be a man of thought, and the events of the spring and summer months of that year 1789 in Paris provided him with abundant matter for reflection. He read there, in the raw, what is perhaps the most amazing page in the history of human development, and in the end he was forced to the conclusion that all his early preconceptions had been at fault, and that it was such exalted, passionate enthusiasts as Villemorin who had been right. I suspect him of actually taking pride in the fact that he had been mistaken, complacently attributing his error to the circumstance that he had been himself of too sane and logical a mind to gauge the depths of human insanity now revealed. He watched the growth of hunger, the increasing poverty and distress of Paris during that spring, and assigned it to its proper cause, together with the patience with which the people bore it. The world of France was in a state of hushed, of paralysed expectancy, waiting for the States-General to assemble, and for centuries of tyranny to end. And because of this expectancy, industry had come to a standstill. The stream of trade had dwindled to a trickle. Men would not buy or sell until they clearly saw the means by which the genius of the Swiss banker, Monsieur Necker, was to deliver them from this morass. And because of this paralysis of affairs, the men of the people were thrown out of work and left to starve with their wives and children. Looking on, André-Louis smiled grimly. So far he was right. The sufferers were ever the proletariat. The men who sought to make this revolution, the electors, here in Paris as elsewhere, were men of substance, notable bourgeois, wealthy traders, and whilst these, despising the canaille and envying the privileged, talked largely of equality, by which they meant an ascending equality that should confuse themselves with the gentry, the proletariat perished of want in its kennels. At last, with the month of May, the deputies arrived, André-Louis' friend Le Chapelier prominent amongst them, and the States-General were inaugurated at Versailles. It was then that affairs began to become interesting, then that André-Louis began seriously to doubt the soundness of the views he had held hitherto. 
When the royal proclamation had gone forth, decreeing that the deputies of the third estate should number twice as many as those of the other two orders together, André-Louis had believed that the preponderance of votes thus assured to the third estate rendered inevitable the reforms to which they had pledged themselves. But he had reckoned without the power of the privileged orders over the proud Austrian queen, and her power over the obese, phlegmatic, irresolute monarch, that the privileged orders should deliver battle in defence of their privileges, André-Louis could understand. Man being what he is, and labouring under his curse of acquisitiveness, will never willingly surrender possessions, whether they be justly or unjustly held. But what surprised André-Louis was the unutterable crassness of the methods by which the privileged ranged themselves for battle. They opposed brute force to reason and philosophy, and battalions of foreign mercenaries to ideas, as if ideas were to be impaled on bayonets. The war between the privileged and the court on one side, and the assembly and the people on the other, had begun. The third estate contained itself, and waited, waited with the patience of nature, waited a month, whilst, with the paralysis of business now complete, the skeleton hand of famine took a firmer grip of Paris, waited a month, whilst privilege gradually assembled an army in Versailles to intimidate it, an army of fifteen regiments, nine of which were Swiss and German, and mounted a park of artillery before the building in which the deputies sat but the deputies refused to be intimidated. They refused to see the guns and foreign uniforms. They refused to see anything but the purpose for which they had been brought together by royal proclamation. Thus, until the 10th of June, when that great thinker and metaphysician, the Abbe Sieille, gave the signal, It is time, said he, to cut the cable and the opportunity came soon, at the very beginning of July. Monsieur du Châtelet, a harsh, haughty disciplinarian, proposed to transfer the eleventh French guards, placed under arrest from the military jail of the Abbey, to the filthy prison of Bicetre, reserved for thieves and felons of the lowest order. Word of that intention going forth, the people at last met violence with violence. A mob, four thousand strong, broke into the Abbey, and delivered thence not only the eleven guardsmen, but all the other prisoners, with the exception of one whom they discovered to be a thief, and whom they put back again. That was open revolt at last, and with revolt privilege knew how to deal. It would strangle this mutinous Paris in the iron grip of the foreign regiments. Measures were quickly concerted. Old Maréchal de Broglie, a veteran of the Seven Years' War, imbued with a soldier's contempt for civilians, conceiving that the sight of a uniform would be enough to restore peace and order, took control with Bessonval as his second-in-command. The foreign regiments were stationed in the environs of Paris, regiments whose very names were an irritation to the Parisians, regiments of Reisbach, of Diesbach, of Nassau, Esterhazy, and Romer. Reinforcements of Swiss were sent to the Bastille, between whose crenelles already, since the 30th of June, 
were to be seen the menacing mouths of loaded cannon. On the 10th of July, the electors once more addressed the king to request the withdrawal of the troops. They were answered next day that the troops served the purpose of defending the liberties of the assembly, and on the next day to that, which was a Sunday, the philanthropist Dr. Guillotin, whose philanthropic engine of painless death was before very long to find a deal of work, came from the assembly, of which he was a member, to assure the electors of Paris that all was well, appearances notwithstanding, since Necker was more firmly in the saddle than ever. He did not know that at the very moment of which he was speaking so confidently, the oft-dismissed and oft-recalled Monsieur Necker had just been dismissed yet again by the hostile cabal about the Queen. Privilege wanted conclusive measures, and conclusive measures it would have, conclusive to itself. And at the same time yet another philanthropist, also a doctor, one Jean-Paul Marat, of Italian extraction, better known as Marat, the Gaulicized form of name he adopted, a man of letters too, who had spent some years in England, and there published several works on sociology, was writing, Have a care. Consider what would be the fatal effect of a seditious movement. If you should have the misfortune to give way to that, you will be treated as people in revolt, and blood will flow. André-Louis was in the gardens of the Palais Royal, that place of shops and puppet shows, of circus and cafés, of gaming-houses and brothels, that universal rendezvous. On that Sunday morning, when the news of Necker's dismissal spread, carrying with it dismay and fury, into Necker's dismissal the people read the triumph of the party hostile to themselves. It sounded the knell of all hope of redress of their wrongs. He beheld a slight young man with a pockmarked face, redeemed from utter ugliness by a pair of magnificent eyes, leap to a table outside the Café de Foix, a drawn sword in his hand, crying, To arms! And then, upon the silence of astonishment that cry imposed, this young man poured a flood of inflammatory eloquence, delivered in a voice marred at moments by a stutter. He told the people that the Germans on the Champ de Mars would enter Paris that night to butcher the inhabitants. Let us mount a cockade, he cried, and tore a leaf from a tree to serve his purpose, the green cockade of hope. Enthusiasm swept the crowd, a motley crowd made up of men and women of every class, from vagabond to nobleman, from harlot to lady of fashion. Trees were despoiled of their leaves, and the green cockade was flaunted from almost every head. You are caught between two fires, the incendiary's stuttering voice raved on. Between the Germans on the Champ de Mars and the Swiss in the Bastille. To arms, then! To arms! Excitement boiled up and over. From a neighbouring waxworks show came the bust of Necker, and presently a bust of that comedian, the Duke of Orléans, who had a party, and who was as ready as any other of the budding opportunists of those days to take advantage of the moment for his own aggrandizement. The bust of Necker was draped with crepe. André-Louis looked on and grew afraid. Marat's pamphlet had impressed him. 
it had expressed what himself he had expressed more than half a year ago at the mob at Rennes. This crowd, he felt, must be restrained. That hot-headed irresponsible stutterer would have the town in a blaze by night unless something were done. The young man, a causeless advocate of the Palais, named Camille d'Amoulin, later to become famous, leapt down from his table, still waving his sword, still shouting, To arms! Follow me! André-Louis advanced to occupy the improvised rostrum, which the stutterer had just vacated, to make an effort at counteracting that inflammatory performance. He thrust through the crowd, and came suddenly face to face with a tall man, beautifully dressed, whose handsome countenance was sternly set, whose great, sombre eyes moulded, as if with suppressed anger. Thus, face to face, each looking into the eyes of the other, they stood for a long moment, the jostling crowd streaming past them, unheeded. Then André-Louis laughed. "'That fellow, too, has a very dangerous gift of eloquence, Monsieur le Marquis,' he said. "'In fact, there are a number of such in France today. They grow from the soil, which you and yours have irrigated with the blood of the martyrs of liberty.' Soon it may be your blood instead. The soil is parched and thirsty for it. Gallows bird, he was answered. The police will do your affair for you. I shall tell the lieutenant-general that you are to be found in Paris. My God, man, cried André-Louis, will you never get sense? Will you talk like that of lieutenant-generals? when Paris itself is likely to tumble about your ears, or take fire under your feet, raise your voice, Monsieur le Marquis. Denounce me here to these. You will make a hero of me in such an hour as this, or shall I denounce you? I think I will. I think it is high time you received your wages. Hi, you others, listen to me. Let me present you to— A rush of men hurtled against him, swept him along with them, do what he would separating him from Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir, so oddly met. He sought to breast that human torrent. The Marquis, caught in an eddy of it, remained where he had been, and André-Louis' last glimpse of him was of a man smiling with tight lips, an ugly smile. Meanwhile the gardens were emptying in the wake of that stuttering firebrand who had mounted the green cockade. The human torrent poured out into the Rue de Richelieu, and André-Louis perforce must suffer himself to be borne along by it, at least as far as the Rue du Hasard. There he sidled out of it, and having no wish to be crushed to death, or to take further part in the madness that was afoot, he slipped down the street, and so got home to the deserted academy. For there were no pupils today, and even Monsieur des Amis, like André-Louis, had gone out to seek for news of what was happening at Versailles. This was no normal state of things at the Academy of Bertrand des Amis. Whatever else in Paris might have been at a standstill lately, the fencing academy had flourished as never hitherto. Usually both the master and his assistant were busy from morning until dusk, and already André-Louis was being paid now by the lessons that he gave, the master allowing him one half of the fee in each case for himself— an arrangement which the assistant found profitable. 
On Sundays, the Academy made half-holiday. But on this Sunday, such had been the state of suspense and ferment in the city, that no one having appeared by eleven o'clock, both des Amis and André-Louis had gone out. Little they thought, as they lightly took leave of each other, they were very good friends by now, that they were never to meet again in this world. Bloodshed there was that day in Paris. On the Place Vendôme, a detachment of dragoons awaited the crowd, out of which André-Louis had slipped. The horsemen swept down upon the mob, dispersed it, smashed the waxen effigy of Monsieur Necker, and killed one man on the spot, an unfortunate French guard who stood his ground. That was a beginning. As a consequence, Bessonval brought up his Swiss from the Champ de Mars, and marshalled them in battle order on the Champs-Élysées with four pieces of artillery. His dragoons he stationed in the Place Louis-Cannes. That evening an enormous crowd, streaming along the Champs-Élysées and the Tuileries gardens, considered with eyes of alarm that warlike preparation. Some insults were cast upon those foreign mercenaries, and some stones were flung. Bessonval, losing his head or acting under orders, sent for his dragoons, and ordered them to disperse the crowd. But that crowd was too dense to be dispersed in this fashion, so dense that it was impossible for the horsemen to move without crushing someone. There were several crushed, and as a consequence, when the dragoons, led by the Prince de Lombesque, advanced into the Tuileries gardens, the outraged crowd met them with a fusillade of stones and bottles. Lambesque gave the order to fire. There was a stampede. Pouring forth from the Tuileries through the city went those indignant people with their story of German cavalry trampling upon women and children, and uttering now in grimmest earnest the call to arms raised at noon by Desmoulins in the Palais Royal. The victims were taken up and borne thence, and amongst them was Bertrand des Amis himself. Like all who lived by the sword, an ardent upholder of the noblesse, trampled to death under hooves of foreign horsemen, launched by the noblesse and led by a nobleman. To André-Louis, waiting that evening on the second floor of numéro 13 rue du Hazard, for the return of his friend and master, four men of the people brought that broken body of one of the earliest victims of the revolution that was now launched in earnest. Chapter 3 President Le Chapelier The ferment of Paris, which, during the two following days, resembled an armed camp rather than a city, delayed the burial of Bertrand des Amis until the Wednesday of that eventful week. Amid events that were shaking a nation to its foundations, the death of a fencing-master passed almost unnoticed, even among his pupils, most of whom did not come to the academy during the two days that his body lay there. Some few, however, did come, and these conveyed the news to others, with the result that the master was followed to Père Lachaise by a score of young men at the head of whom, as chief mourner, walked André-Louis. There were no relatives to be advised so far as André-Louis was aware, although within a week of Monsieur Desamis's death, a sister turned up from Passy to claim his heritage. This was considerable, 
for the master had prospered and saved money, most of which was invested in the Compagnie des Eaux and the national debt. André-Louis consigned her to the lawyers and saw her no more. The death of Des Amis left him with so profound a sense of loneliness and desolation that he had no thought or care for the sudden access of fortune which had automatically procured him. To the master's sister might fall such wealth as he had amassed, but André-Louis succeeded to the mine itself from which that wealth had been extracted. The fencing school, in which by now he was himself so well established as an instructor, that its numerous pupils looked to him to carry it forward successfully as its chief. And never was there a season in which fencing academies knew such prosperity as in these troubled days, when every man was sharpening his sword and schooling himself in the uses of it. It was not until a couple of weeks later that André-Louis realized what had really happened to him, and he found himself at the same time an exhausted man, for during that fortnight he had been doing the work of two. If he had not hit upon the happy expedient of pairing off his more advanced pupils to fence with each other, himself standing by to criticize, correct and otherwise instruct, he must have found the task utterly beyond his strength. Even so, it was necessary for him to fence some six hours daily, and every day he brought arrears of lassitude from yesterday until he was in danger of succumbing under the increasing burden of fatigue. In the end, he took an assistant to deal with beginners, who gave the hardest work. He found him readily enough, by good fortune, in one of his own pupils named Le Duc. As the summer advanced, and the concourses of pupils steadily increased, it became necessary for him to take yet another assistant, an able young instructor named Galoche, and another room on the floor above. They were strenuous days for André-Louis, more strenuous than he had ever known, even when he had been at work to build up the Binet Company. But it follows that they were days of extraordinary prosperity. He comments regretfully upon the fact that Bertrand des Amis should have died by ill chance on the very eve of so profitable a vogue of sword-play. The arms of the Académie du Roi, to which André-Louis had no title, still continued to be displayed outside his door. He had overcome the difficulty in a manner worthy of Scaramouche. He left the escutcheon and the legend Académie de Bertrand des Amis, Maître, en fait d'armes des Académies du Roi, appending to it the further legend, conducted by André-Louis. With little time now in which to go abroad, it was from his pupils and the newspapers, of which a flood have risen in Paris with the establishment of the freedom of the press, that he learnt of the revolutionary processes around him, following upon, as a measure of anticlimax, the fall of the Bastille. That had happened whilst Monsieur des Amis lay dead, on the day before they buried him, and was indeed the chief reason of the delay in his burial. It was an event that had its inspiration in that ill-considered charge of Prince Lombesque in which the fencing-master had been killed. The outraged people had besieged the electors in the Hôtel de Ville, demanding arms with which to defend their lives from these foreign murderers hired by despotism. And in the end the electors had consented to give them arms, or rather, for arms it had none to give, to permit them to arm themselves. 
Also, it had given them a cockade of red and blue, the colours of Paris, because these colours were also those of the liveries of the Duke of Orléans, white was added to them, the white of the ancient standard of France, and thus was the tricolour born. Further, a permanent committee of electors was appointed to watch over public order. Thus empowered, the people went to work with such good effect that within thirty-six hours sixty thousand pikes had been forged. At nine o'clock on Tuesday morning, thirty thousand men were before the Invalides. By eleven o'clock they had ravished it of its store of arms, amounting to some thirty thousand muskets, whilst others had seized the arsenal and possessed themselves of powder. Thus they prepared to resist the attack that from seven points was to be launched that evening upon the city. But Paris did not wait for the attack. It took the initiative. Mad with enthusiasm, it conceived the insane project of taking that terrible menacing fortress, the Bastille. And what is more, it succeeded, as you know, before five o'clock that night, aided in the enterprise by the French guards with cannon. The news of it, borne to Versailles by Lambesque in flight with his dragoons, before the vast armed force that had sprouted from the paving stones of Paris, gave the court pause. The people were in possession of the guns captured from the Bastille. They were erecting barricades in the streets, and mounting these guns upon them. The attack had been too long delayed. It must be abandoned, since now it could lead only to fruitless slaughter that must further shake the already sorely shaken prestige of royalty. And so the court, growing momentarily wise again under the spur of fear, preferred to temporize. Nacaire should be brought back yet once again. The three orders should sit united as the National Assembly demanded. It was the completest surrender of force to force, the only argument. The king went alone to inform the National Assembly of that eleventh-hour resolve, to the great comfort of its members, who viewed with pain and alarm the dreadful state of things in Paris. No force but the force of reason and argument was their watchword, and it was so to continue for two years yet, with the patience and fortitude in the face of ceaseless provocation to which insufficient justice has been done. As the king was leaving the assembly, a woman, embracing his knees, gave tongue to what might well be the question of all France. Ah, oh, sire, are you really sincere? Are you sure they will not make you change your mind? Yet no such question was asked, when a couple of days later the king, alone and unguarded, save by the representatives of the nation, came to Paris to complete the peacemaking, the surrender of privilege. The court was filled with terror by the adventure. Were they not the enemy, these mutinous Parisians? And should a king go thus among his enemies? If he shared some of that fear, as the gloom of him might lead us to suppose, he must have found it idle. What if two hundred thousand men under arms, men without uniforms, and with the most extraordinary motley of weapons ever seen, awaited him? They awaited him as a guard of honour. Major Bailly, at the barrier, presented him with the keys of the city. These are the same keys that were presented to Henri IV. He had reconquered his people. Now the people have reconquered their king.
At the Hôtel de Ville, Maillot Bailly offered him a new cockade, a tricolored symbol of constitutional France, and when he had given his royal confirmation to the formation of the Garde Bourgeoise and to the appointments of Bailly and Lafayette, he departed again for Versailles amid the shouts of Vive le Roi from his loyal people. And now you see privilege, before the cannon's mouth, as it were, submitting at last, where, had they submitted sooner, they might have saved oceans of blood, chiefly their own. They come, nobles and clergy, to join the National Assembly, to labour with it upon this constitution that is to regenerate France. But the reunion is a mockery, as much a mockery as that of the Archbishop of Paris singing the Te Deum for the fall of the Bastille. Most grotesque and incredible of all these grotesque and incredible events. All that has happened to the National Assembly is that it has introduced five or six hundred enemies to hamper and hinder its deliberations. But all this is an oft-told tale, to be read in detail elsewhere. I give you here just so much of it as I have found in André Louis's own writings, almost in his own words, reflecting the changes that were operated in his mind. Silent now, he came fully to believe in those things in which he had not believed when earlier he had preached them. Meanwhile, together with the change in his fortune and some change in his position towards the law, a change brought about by the other changes wrought around him, no longer need he hide himself. Who in these days would prefer against him the grotesque charge of sedition for what he had done in Brittany? What court would dare to send him to the gallows for having said in advance what all France was saying now? As for that other possible charge of murder— who should concern himself with the death of the miserable Binet, killed by him, if indeed he had killed him, as he hoped, in self-defence? And so one fine day in early August, André-Louis gave himself a holiday from the academy, which was now working smoothly under his assistance, hired a chaise, and drove out to Versailles to the Café d'Aumory, which he knew for the meeting-place of the Club Breton, the seed from which was to spring that society of the friends of the Constitution, better known as the Jacobin. He went to seek Le Chapelier, who had been one of the founders of the club, a man of great prominence now, president of the Assembly in this important season, when it was deliberating upon the Declaration of the Rights of Man. Le Chapelier's importance was reflected in the sudden servility of the shirt-sleeved, white-aproned waiter of whom André-Louis inquired for the representative. Monsieur Le Chapelier was above stairs with friends. The waiter desired to serve the gentleman, but hesitated to break in upon the assembly in which Monsieur Le Député found himself. André-Louis gave him a piece of silver to encourage him to make the attempt. Then he sat down at a marble-topped table by the window, looking out over the wide tree-encircled square. There... In that common room of the café, deserted at this hour of mid-afternoon, the great man came to him. Less than a year ago, he had yielded precedence to André-Louis in a matter of delicate leadership. Today he stood on the heights, one of the great leaders of the nation in travail, and André-Louis was deep down in the shadows of the general mass. The thought was in the minds of both as they scanned each other, 
each noting in the other the marked change that a few months had wrought. In Le Chapelier, André-Louis observed certain heightened refinements of dress that went with certain subtler refinements of countenance. He was thinner than of old, his face was pale, and there was a weariness in the eyes that considered his visitor through a gold-rimmed spyglass. In André-Louis, those jaded but quick-moving eyes of the Breton deputy noted changes even more marked. The almost constant swordsmanship of these last months had given André-Louis a grace of movement, a poise, and a curious indefinable air of dignity, of command. He seemed taller by virtue of this, and he was dressed with an elegance which, if quiet, was nonetheless rich. He wore a small, silver-hilted sword, and wore it as if used to it, and his black hair, that Le Chapelier had never seen other than fluttering lank about his bony cheeks, was glossy now and gathered into a club. Almost he had the air of a petit maître. In both, however, the changes were purely superficial, as each was soon to reveal to the other. Le Chapelier was ever the same direct and downright Breton, abrupt of manner and of speech. He stood smiling a moment in mingled surprise and pleasure, then opened wide his arms. They embraced under the awe-stricken gaze of the waiter, who at once effaced himself. "'André-Louis, my friend, whence did you drop?' "'We drop from above. I come from below to survey at close quarters one who is on the heights.' "'On the heights? But that you willed it so, it is yourself might now be standing in my place.' I have a poor head for heights, and I find the atmosphere too rarefied. Indeed, you look none too well on it yourself, Isaac. You are pale. The assembly was in session all last night, that is all. These damned privileged multiply our difficulties. They will do so until we decree their abolition. They sat down. Abolition? You contemplate so much? Not that you surprise me. You have always been an extremist. I contemplate it, that I may save them. I seek to abolish them officially, so as to save them from abolition of another kind at the hands of a people they exasperate. I see. And the king? The king is the incarnation of the nation. We shall deliver him together with the nation from the bondage of privilege. Our constitution will accomplish it. You agree? André-Louis shrugged. Does it matter? I am a dreamer in politics, not a man of action. Until lately, I have been very moderate, more moderate than you think. But now, almost, I am a Republican. I have been watching, and I have perceived that this king is just nothing, a puppet who dances according to the hand that pulls the string. This king, you say? What other king is possible? You are surely not of those who weave dreams about Orléans, he has a sort of party, a following largely recruited by the popular hatred of the Queen and the known fact that she hates him. There are some who have thought of making him regent, some even more. Robespierre is of that number. Who? asked André-Louis, to whom the name was unknown. Robespierre, a preposterous little lawyer who represents Arras, a shabby, clumsy, timid dullard, who will make speeches through his nose to which nobody listens, an ultra-royalist, whom the royalists and the Orleanists 
are using for their own ends. He has pertinacity, and he insists upon being heard. He may be listened to some day, but that he or the others will ever make anything of Orléans, Orléans himself may desire it, but the man is a eunuch in crime. He would, but he can't. The phrase is Mirabeau's. He broke off to demand André Louis' news of himself. You did not treat me as a friend when you wrote to me, he complained. You gave me no clue to your whereabouts. You represented yourself as on the verge of destitution, and withheld from me the means to come to your assistance. I have been troubled in mind about you, André. Yet to judge by your appearance, I might have spared myself that. You seem prosperous, assured. Tell me of it. André-Louis told him frankly all that there was to tell. "'Do you know that you are an amazement to me?' said the deputy. "'From the robe to the buskin, and now from the buskin to the sword. "'What will be the end of you, I wonder?' "'The gallows, probably. Pish, be serious. "'Why not the toga of the senator in senatorial France? "'It might be yours now, if you had willed it so.' "'The surest way to the gallows of all,' laughed André-Louis. At the moment, Le Chapelier manifested impatience. I wonder, did the phrase cross his mind that day four years later, when he himself rode in the death-cart to the Grève? We are sixty-six Breton deputies in the Assembly. Should a vacancy occur, will you act as suppliant? A word from me, together with the influence of your name in Rennes and Nantes, and the thing is done. André-Louis laughed outright. Do you know, Isaac? "'that I never meet you, but you seek to thrust me into politics? "'Because you have a gift for politics. "'You were born for politics. "'Ah, yes. "'Scaramouche in real life. "'I've played it on the stage. "'Let that suffice. "'Tell me, Isaac, what news of my old friend Latour d'Azir? "'He is here in Versailles, damn him, "'a thorn in the flesh of the assembly. "'They've burnt his chateau at Latour d'Azir.' Unfortunately, he wasn't in it at the time. The flames haven't even singed his insolence. He dreams that when this philosophic aberration is at an end, there will be serfs to rebuild it for him. So there has been trouble in Brittany? André-Louis had become suddenly grave, his thoughts swinging to Gavriac. An abundance of it, and elsewhere too. Can you wonder? These delays at such a time, with famine in the land... Chateaux have been going up in smoke during the last fortnight. The peasants took their cue from the Parisians and treated every castle as a Bastille. Order is being restored, there as here, and they are quieter now. What of Gavriac, do you know? I believe all to be well. Monsieur de Kercadou was not a Marquis de la Tour d'Azir. He was in sympathy with his people. It is not likely that they would injure Gavriac. "'But don't you correspond with your godfather?' "'In the circumstances, no. "'What you tell me would make it now more difficult than ever, "'for he must account me one of those who helped to light the torch "'that has set fire to so much belonging to his glass. "'Ascertain for me that all is well, and let me know.' "'I will, at once.' "'At parting, when André-Louis was on the point of stepping into his cabriolet "'to return to Paris, he sought information on another matter.' "'Do you happen to know if Monsieur de la Tour d'Azir is married?' he asked. "'I don't. Which really means that he hasn't. One would have heard of it in the case of that exalted privileged. To be sure, 
André-Louis spoke indifferently. Au revoir, Isaac. You'll come and see me. Thirteen rue du hasard. Come soon. As soon and as often as my duties will allow. They keep me chained here at present. Poor slave of duty with your gospel of liberty. True. And because of that I will come. I have a duty to Brittany. To make Omnis Omnibus one of her representatives in the National Assembly. That is a duty you will oblige me by neglecting, laughed André-Louis, and drove away. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Scaramouche, Part 8 of 12, by Raphael Sabatini. If you have enjoyed this book, feel free to visit our new website at classictalesaudiobooks.com. You can download some free audiobooks and sign up to be a financial supporter for as little as $5 a month. The supporter program is a study in over-delivery. Give it a try and see how you like it. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper.